This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Oh, well, welcome back to the show, everybody. Yeah. We are super happy to have you. As always. Yeah, it's a very exciting time here in December. Jingle bells are ringing. Uh, <laughs> Hanukkah candles will be lit. There we go. Okay. And also Kwanzaa candles, I suppose. Oh, yeah, sure. And solstice candles? Solstice candles, probably. Oh, wait, no, don't the solstice, the solstice celebration is where you balance an egg, right? It stands straight <laughs> up when you put it on the counter. Is that, I think I've that's what they all, they all got together. That? Well, you never heard that? No, I've never heard of that. Oh, it was, it was always that. On the solstice, you can stand an egg up on its end, and it will it'll stay up. It won't tip. Why have we never tried this? Because of the because it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> we never had an egg to lose. <laughs> True, we can't afford to lose an egg. We're podcasters. Every time somebody sees me holding an egg, they're like, "Careful, you're a podcaster." It could all come crashing down. That could so be that quickly. could be your last egg. That tickled me. <laughs> yeah, well, the truth is funny. Speaking of eggs. Oh. Speaking of something, we got a story. <laughs> Speaking of podcasting, that's what we're supposed go. to be doing right now. There you now. go. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Is there a microphone in front of me? <laughs> oh, you're just going off. I'm still sick. I'm blaming the loopiness on Bl- that. Blame the loopiness on the fruity loopiness on that. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, we actually do have an episode. <laughs> we're not just going to go off forever. Victor Hugo, you've heard of Victor Hugo. I imagine he is oh, one of France's finest, most famous authors. He wrote Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh-huh. And he was actually suggested to us a while back um, by Ginny A, or at the Perky Goth on Instagram. Thank you, Ginny. I know you have also given us uh, several other really good suggestions. Yes. So Ginny is always Ginny. coming through. And then another listener, Cassandra Carda, sent us uh, Victor Hugo as well. 
Because his insane sex drive has just been making the rounds on the internet lately. (laughs) So thank you both for sending him in because he was really fun to get into. But as we were researching his life and his many, 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 many loves, Uh (laughs) you know what happened. This has happened before. We got sidetracked because his parents had a very ridiculous romance of their own. And their side pieces, their revolutionary politics, and their contentious divorce would combine to become some of the most significant events in Victor's formative years. So let us tell you about Victor Hugo's parents, Joseph Leopold Sigisbert Hugo and Sophie Trebuchet. Yeah, let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Joseph Leopold Hugo, usually just called Leopold, he was a well-educated son of a wood merchant and a governess. But he threw away his chance to pursue his studies to lead a more exciting and rowdy army life. Ah, classic. In his New York Times article called Victor Hugo, Graham Robb writes that Leopold was, quote, a short, broad-chested man with a ruddy face and a fat nose, swerving constantly from deep dejection to violent elation, full of flattering stories about himself, delighted to have been shot through the neck and to have had two horses blown to pieces while he was riding them in battle. I'm sorry, uh, just to interrupt, that sounds like describing any 18th century Frenchman to me. (laughs) (laughs) I was a very celebrated personality, I think, at that time. Oh, yeah. Short, broad-chested, having your horses blown up while you're riding them. You hear lots of great stories about you know, the esprit de guerre. Yes, classic 1700s Frenchman. Rob continues, quote, he was unashamed of his plebeian roots, but keen to provide himself with aristocratic forebears. Mm. He worshipped his commanding officer, Muscar, and like him, wrote body songs and dragged a mistress around with him on all his campaigns. In a letter that Leopold wrote to Muscar, he wrote, quote, I often press her to my breast and... Through two pretty spheres, I feel the forces which move the world. Draw the curtain! Wow. <laughs> so poetry. We should put that in poetry corner. <laughs> I know. We should have like a letter de- letter writing desk. <laughs> they don't Some get, of these letters, man. They get more passionate than that. I know, right. So he's just a real rough and ready type, you know? Yeah. We, we, we get it. Now, after the revolution began and civil war engulfed the nation of France, Leopold nicknamed himself Brutus, and he was part of the cleansing of Brittany, which was a region of France that was full of monarchist sympathizers. Mm -hmm. Of course, these were the people that were getting ousted in this revolution. Exactly. Graham Robb writes that Leopold, quote, presided over the massacre of entire villages, executed congregations, and, like many soldiers in similar circumstances, adopted an abandoned child. When his own children began to arrive, the orphan would be given away. And this that is part of the complicated legacy of the French Revolution. Right. I, I mean, mean, in all revolutions, but extremely like... Extremely messy time. Yeah, this guy is comes in, he's like, I'm going to oust the monarchy. 
And you're like, oh, good. We, they're so oppressive. And he's like, and then I'm going to massacre entire villages of people. And you're like, oh, Whoa. yeah, I'm not sure if that's what that was signing up for. But. Ooh. And then some people were like, yes, yeah. exactly what I wanted. Right. Like, and you're like, hey, I didn't know there were so many of you. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Just a messy time. But yes. that seems heartless. Like, how cold. To have adopted, like, I can't even do it. I couldn't even do it with a, an animal, like I a know, cat right? or a dog, to adopt for a little while and then be like, well, now I've got my own, so you can go on back Served to the street. <laughs> oh, how terrible. Awful, awful. Then at the age of 22, in the winter of 1795, Leopold was in Chateaubriand, a small town a few miles away from Brittany, And he was scouring the countryside for some renegade priests he was trying to track down. On the job. And that's when he met, quote, a frail, dark-eyed girl. Her name was Sophie Trebuchet. Sophie Trebuchet was the daughter of a cargo ship captain. But both her parents died before she was 12 years old. And she was taken in by her aunt, Francoise, and was living with her in Brittany when the revolution really kicked off in 1789. Mm. Sophie did go to, like, revolutionary rallies and everything, but she kind of got some sympathy for the royalist cause because she witnessed the execution of a family friend and her two young children. Right. During the Reign of Terror. That was not unusual, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I guess it really hit her kind of hard. You can imagine, too, if you're young and you see that kind of activity happening, mm-hmm. your your side is chosen for you, right? Like, all you see is brutality against people you care about. I mean, exactly. Yeah. If you've got real people in mind, everything comes very personal. Right. Especially if you have not been affected negatively by the existing oppression that was causing the revolution in the first place. True. Right. Anyway, in 1795, she was living in Chateaubriand at Aunt Francoise's country home. And when Sophie met this young, enthusiastically Republican soldier crashing through the bushes looking for anti-revolutionaries, She's like, okay. And she invited him to tea at her aunt's. Oh, come with me to tea, you daring revolutionary. (laughs) Maybe I could set aside all the brutality I've seen conducted against my people for a few minutes. (laughs) Sophie was very reserved. She was self-controlled, a little bit secretive, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Victor Hugo wrote of his mother that she, quote, accustomed me from childhood to keep everything to myself and let nothing out. Mm. Now, she was also 17 months older than Leopold and better educated than him. Of course, he abandoned his education to become a a freewheeling soldier, right? So (laughs) no surprise there. Graham Robb writes, quote, A different creature altogether from his battle-scarred mistress and far more intimidating than a band of Breton peasants brandishing their pitchforks and axes. He was like, oh, she is a lady. (laughs) And Leopold's courtship game was as rough as he was, right? <laughs> not not Mr. Smooth, not Monsieur Smooth here. Rob writes, quote, he showed off his shattered foot, his uniform with its 17 bullet holes, and recited his verse. Sophie seemed to have impressed him more than he impressed her. He goes up, hey, pretty lady, uh, check out my mangled foot. What do you think? Pretty cool, huh? Uh-huh. Sexy. <laughs> are you, are you, do you find me irresistible? <laughs> Blah. <laughs> She's like, uh, blah, yeah. <laughs> blah, I do. <laughs> I have a lot of bullet holes in my uniform. <laughs> yeah. Hey, don't you want to marry me? I almost die all the time. 
<laughs> Let me read you my poem about other women's breasts. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so Sophie was a little bit hard for him to win over. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And then Leopold was summoned back to Paris six months later and took a desk job. And he promised, I will write to you, my love. Mm-hmm. I will write you beautiful poetry about your boobs. <laughs> <laughs> I am very serious about this relationship. <laughs> Now, she did finally join him in Paris in November of 1797. But this is only to find out that he had cheated on her. Mainly because he wrote, quote, a jovial letter to his commanding officer admitting to it. Dear Muscar, I got laid last night. Let me tell you everything. (laughs) Rob writes in his New York Times article, quote, rather than face a humiliating return to her hometown, she married him without a priest on November 15th of 1797. There had been talk of a dowry, but to the disappointment of Leopold, it turned out to consist mainly of bed linen. Oopsie. Whoopsie. You gotta get those details worked out. Right. Before you <laughs> tell a woman you'll marry her and then go back to Paris, sleep with somebody else, then drag her across the country. I mean, seriously. Come on, got, man. He, he kind of got what he deserved. Leopold, do your research. I I love that reveal, too. He's like, I'm ready for my dowry now. And she's like, <laughs> okay, here it is. It's like, what the hell is this? They're very fine sheets. This is some bed sheets. They're okay, I guess. I like jersey knit myself. Oh. <laughs> he's kind of a frat boy, right? So uh, You're right. He's got like dorm room <laughs> sheets. Like, yeah, he was like, dorm sheets. Now, Paris, of course, is a real wild place at this point in history. This point in history? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was only six months before Napoleon Bonaparte's coup. Oh, that's pretty wild. Rob writes that the city was, quote, more like a post-revolution Zanzibar than modern Paris. The Tuileries Gardens had suffered the indignity of spades and potatoes. Statues had been toppled. The inscriptions erased. Employees of the Conseil de Guerre occupied the Hotel de Ville, renamed Maison Commune, where the only intact decorations were the busts of revolutionary leaders. Wow. Not so pretty as yeah, it is now, I suppose. Mess. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. The indignity of spades and the potatoes. I know. <laughs> I can see spades. They went in and they dug up the gardens. And then what they do? Plant potatoes? I mean, yeah. Wow. That but I mean, it was them. like, yeah, they, they had, had no to food. live. Yeah, they had yeah, to live. They were like, of... I'm taking out your rose bushes and I'm putting in something I can eat. Uh-huh. Exactly. You're using this land improperly. Mm-hmm. And in their off time, the revolutionaries like to hang out in the Jardin d'Italie near the Champs-Élysées. Oh, la, la. Rob writes that the Jardin, quote, was an excuse for open-air pornography. Oh. Tableau vivant and women dressed as sylphs disporting themselves in midair attached to balloons. Excuse me? We simply do not party like we used to. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm, now I'm glad I canceled my birthday party because I'm going to reschedule. <laughs> and I'm definitely getting, I'm sorry, Some what was sylphs? it? Women dressed as sylphs disporting themselves midair attached to balloons. This is what I want at my birthday party. <laughs> this is what just... workers' rights have, and protections have done. It's <laughs> prevented this kind of nonsense. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying we make them do it without paying them. I'm just saying you asked me what kind of decorations I wanted, and I didn't know until now. <laughs> All right, I'll get a couple Barbies together. <laughs> Attach right. with some helium balloons. Anyway, Major Leopold Brutus Hugo took his wife Sophie to the Jardin one night. Seems like a great place for a date, I guess. <laughs> get her all worked up. And he ran into an old friend, Colonel Victor Lahorie, the chief of staff for General Moreau. 
I got to say, at this point, she knew what she was getting into with this guy. Right. Even before this true. point, he was not suave enough to make him seem cooler than he was. <laughs> you know, so I felt like when she came to Paris, she must have known what she was getting into. <laughs> I think so. And I know she was real closed off. Yeah. But like, maybe she liked that about yeah, him. He, she was like, yeah. he drags me out to crazy shit. Right. And my life feels different. That's true. I mean. All right. Well, here is where the story gets a little bit of a bonus romance. General Moreau and his wife. Moreau was a celebrated general and helped bring Napoleon Bonaparte to power. As a reward, he was given command of the Army of the Rhine again, which had been taken away from him because he defended a friend who turned out to be a traitor. You know how it is. But he also met a friend of Napoleon's first wife, and her name was Eugenie. Eugenie was 19, and she managed to wrap the general completely around her finger. He was a into mm -hmm. it. Now, after they got married, she started to collect a bunch of friends who were all starting to sour on Napoleon Bonaparte, you know. Mm -hmm. oh, everybody thinks he's so great, but he's not even that tall. And he's always got his hand in his shirt. And, uh, you know, he's uh, three... Th the three most boring flavors of ice cream together. And, uh, <laughs> wait, that's Neapolitan. Um, you know, Napoleon. We don't like him. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but it was mostly because Napoleon had a lot of power and popularity, and the French were kind of sensitive to that right now. They didn't really yeah. love people with a lot of power and popularity. Right. So They had a right to be worried about what he yeah. was going to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So she found a lot of friends, mm -hmm. people who felt the same way, and they got together and called themselves Club Moreau. She's like, you got to get down to Club Moreau, the hottest spot in 1797. Everybody <laughs> wants to hang out at Club Moreau. We have all the cool things. Tall people, people who don't put their hands in their shirts. <laughs> We've got ladies hanging from balloons in the corner. <laughs> Club Moreau, it's where it's at. Club Moreau. <laughs> Well, it wasn't long before Club Moreau made plans to topple Napoleon and put Louis XVIII on the throne. Mm -hmm. Moreau was supposed to be one of the guys who would take charge once Napoleon was assassinated. That was their plan. Mm -hmm. Take on Napoleon, we'll put Moreau in charge. But Moreau turned against the scheme himself when he saw how completely disorganized they were. Well, they were so disorganized that eventually a bunch of the conspirators were seized. And Moreau had to go strike a deal with Napoleon because obviously his name was tied to this. Oh, yeah. The club was named after him. <laughs> so didn't really sit well. And instead of being executed, Napoleon agreed that Moreau and his wife, Eugenie, could be exiled to America, which, oh, the torture. Um, <laughs> but don't forget the Moreaus. We will get back to the Hugos now, but... We are going to see the Moreaus again. That's right. Um, but let us take a quick commercial break, and we'll hear more about Leopold and Sophie Hugo. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Bienvenue. So where we had left off with the Hugos was that they had run into Leopold's old friend, Victor Lahorie. And he's like, hey, man, I got stuck at this desk job. What can you do to help me out? You're the chief of staff with General Moreau. Can you put in a good word? Get me back on the field. I want to get back out there. Yeah. So with his help, Leopold returned to active service. And this is when the family started moving around a lot. In 1798, Sophie gave birth to their first son, Abel. Then they moved to Leopold's hometown of Nancy, where she stayed with the Hugo family. Okay. And Leopold was in charge of invading Bavaria. And that brought him to the notice of Joseph Bonaparte, who is Napoleon's older brother. Ooh. And he praised his, quote, courage, activity, and intelligence. Wow. So he was a good, good army guy, I guess. Sophie also met Joseph Bonaparte at that time, but she's a little preoccupied because she was pregnant again oh. with their second son. And in 1800, Eugène Hugo was born. Oh. Very soon after that, the family moved to Lunville and were there in February of 1801 when the treaty was signed that consolidated Napoleon's empire. Ah, big deal. We're living in Bonaparte, France yeah. now. And our boy, Victor Marie Hugo. Ooh was also conceived in Lunvia. Oh. And this seems like a private piece of information. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we only know this because his father, Leopold, wrote him a letter in 1821 saying he was created, quote, almost in midair oh. on one of the highest peaks of the Vosges Mountains. Wow. And that this elevated origin seems to have had effects on you so that your muse is now continually sublime. Wow. <laughs> well, actually, my boy, the reason you're so smart is because I fucked your mother on top of a mountain. 
And that's how you got where you are. That is, uh, on, I mean, you know, oh, my goodness. not a conversation I've had with my parents and not one I need. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a grim Rob thinks Leopold was probably just trying to take some credit for his son's writing because he was very wow. famous by this time. But he also thought it was, quote, a poor substitute for the army or the civil service. Oh, that writing was? <laughs> yeah. Wow. The date on which Victor was supposedly conceived on a mountaintop was the 24th of June, 1801. Uh. And fun fact, that is Jean Valjean's prisoner number in Les Miserables. Oh. And it's because... 24601. 24601. And it's Mm -hmm. because that's the date of his conception. And in the mid-1960s, a museum curator actually put a plaque there, pronouncing it as the place (laughs) where Victor Hugo was conceived. As a practical joke, but it's still there today. Wow. (laughs) You can go climb the Vosges Mountains and find it. (laughs) <laughs> what a hike for yourself i know uh, right i mean i guess a point of interest i suppose being exhausted halfway up the hike and be like no damn it i gotta get <laughs> to where see it. victor hugo's parents fucked <laughs> maybe people go there and like they're like i want to conceive I'm a genius so sure they like climb the Vosges mountains and how many the spot where victor hugo was conceived <laughs> but the air is so thin you know, that's got to affect your development, they... right? Yeah, they all passed out. <laughs> they just take a little nap. <laughs> <laughs> now, Victor Hugo himself preferred to tell people that he was conceived on Mont Blanc in the Alps. Oh. Because it was more famous, it uh-huh. was 3,000 feet higher, uh-huh. and it's at the intersection of France, Italy, and Switzerland, so oh. it made him kind of like an international man of mystery. Kind of. Mont Blanc. <laughs> I wonder if that's uh, why they named the pens that. Or rather, you know what? Mm. Mont Blanc. Here's an ad for you. Uh, our pens are named after the mountain where Victor Hugo was conceived. So if you want to write like Victor Hugo, if you want to have sex like Leopold and Sophie Trebuchet, then buy a Mont Blanc pen. <laughs> this is a clunky ad. <laughs> Look, I have stop, to say, I have to say. Hey, they're going to send us a box of free pens. Oh, shit. That's how podcasting works, I hear. Oh. One of these days, I someone that we talk about is going to send us a free something. I can't wait. <laughs> Victor was supposed to be a girl named Victorine Marie, or they were hoping for a girl anyway. Right, right, right. Their name was planned Victorine after Leopold's friend, Victor Lahori. Yeah. And Marie after some other family friend who we won't go into here. Mm -hmm. But his mother described Victor as, quote, no longer than a knife when he was born. So Graham Robb speculates that he was probably premature. Mm -hmm. In his own autobiographical poems, Victor Hugo talks about being weak and sickly and says that a double order was placed with the woodmaker for both coffin and cradle. Really hedging their bets there. But only six weeks after he was born, the entire Hugo family left for Marseille because Leopold Hugo had accused his commanding officer of embezzlement. Oops. And slanderous accusations started being made about Leopold. Yeah. He's in a whole lot of trouble. Yeah. So in November of 1782, he whisked the family off to Marseille, and then he sent Sophie to Paris to plead his case with Joseph Bonaparte and Victor Lahari while he continued with his army duties. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, honey, I made a bit of a mess. Why don't you go to Paris and clean it up for me? Mm-hmm. Thank you exactly. so much. <laughs> now, this began a period of separation between Sophie and Leopold. He set sail for Corsica, with his three sons in tow to fight the Brits. 
So hopefully the babies were like far away. <laughs> or heavily armored. <laughs> like, he had a real like a little iron cradle. Iron cradle, exactly. Uh-huh. Well, Sophie stayed in Paris because um she had some things she was doing. Oh. Which brings us to our first side piece. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And guess what? It was Victor Lahorie. What? Oh, yeah. Sophie started lahoing it up in Paris with her husband's bestie. But she just went there to help plead his case to this guy. Well, she is pleading this case, all right. Uh-oh. And Graham Rob says that without her, the living conditions for all the Hugos got pretty dismal. Mm. Um, in June 1803, they were living on the tiny island of Elba. Graham Rob writes, quote, the major felt abandoned. He freely admitted that he did not make a good mother. Well, he mar- he barely made a good husband. I, I mean, you know, he's like, I, I'm in the army, y'all. I'm supposed to be out here <laughs> riling it up. Like, <laughs> I can't be rocking a baby round. Uh-huh. And Sophie wasn't answering his letters, which makes her sound pretty heartless because she's like doing it with his bestie and not right. answering his letters. But Rob clarifies, quote, the bottom line of all his letters is that he was desperate for sex. Oh. In his view, Sophie had been given fair warning. Now he was hanging on to fidelity by his fingertips. Oh, jeez. He apparently wrote in one letter, quote, do you think that at my age and with my character, it's a good idea to leave me to my own devices? (laughs) Well, I mean... (laughs) I, I, you know, I, he's not wrong. I mean, true. It's like, look, I'm a piece of shit. What do you want me to say? <laughs> you know it. I know it. <laughs> I'm going to get into some trouble. I, I cheated on you before we ever got married. <laughs> uh, but he also told her that the women in Elba, quote, had a habit of stabbing their lovers to death. Oh, and that there was a guarantee of STDs. Oh, my God. So he's basically writing to her being like, honey, if you don't fuck me, I'm going to cheat on you with someone who will give me syphilis and then stab me through the heart. What? You don't want that on your conscience. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, But isn't she like off doing something for him technically as far as he knows? As far as he knows, yes. She so is what does he want to do? Drop his case apart. and come and get on a boat and come down there and do him? I do not know. Unbelievable. I do not know. I mean, I know what he's really saying. He's just setting himself up with a defense later. Oh, exactly. Graham Robb writes that exact thing. He says, quote, It was clear the marriage was over. By insisting on his impressive desires, the expert in self-justification was writing out his absolution in advance. Yeah, yeah, there so it he, is. He just wanted to be like, it's your fault if I cheat on you because uh-huh. you're not here. But she's not there because he sent her away. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, she is definitely doing her own thing. Oh, sure. As well, she should. She's not no, any, a saint in the story, but like, <laughs> come on, bro. <laughs> what are you writing? But finally, Sophie did respond to these letters. She had worked out his dispute and secured his future in the army. Thanks to Lahorie. Mm-hmm. I wonder why he felt like he owed him a favor. She's like, I traded some favors. I pulled a few strings, you could say. The strings of my garters. <laughs> I was thinking the string was his dick, but yeah, that works too. Her corset strings. Uh-huh. She's taken off go. her dress. That's classier than what I said. Okay. <laughs> she left Paris and she joined him and her children in Elba in July of 1803. But only four months later, she went back to Paris. This time, she took her three sons with her leaving Leopold behind. Hmm. 
Now, things get a little weird here in the record. Sophie's story is that during those four months she was in Elba, she discovered that Leopold was keeping a mistress whom she called, quote, an English concubine. And that brings us to our second side piece. Excuse me? Catherine Thomas was the daughter of a hospital employee, 10 years younger than Leopold, childless and exciting. Sophie said that basically as soon as she arrived in Elba, Leopold started telling her that, oh, the British are coming. Uh, They're they're basically already here already, baby. You know, battle's going to break out at any moment. You better take these kids and uh, head back to Paris right away. You better go for your own safety. It's Mm -hmm, important. mm -hmm. Uh, Don't look under the bed, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Or the wardrobe. I don't know where she went. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who's she? The British. I Uh, I don't know where the British are. They They might be in the closet. (laughs) Best not to look. How about you just take the kids on your go? Oh, Lord. (laughs) Which Sophie did. She said she suspected nothing at the time, but Leopold sent her away so he could indulge his, quote, unbridled passions. Graham Robb also writes that Catherine Thomas was, quote, probably the model for the transvestite soldier in Leopold's conventionally melodramatic novel that he wrote in retirement. So... Leopold wrote a novel after he retired yes. that has a transvestite s- soldier in it. Yes. Okay. So speculation station. Yes. What if Sophie shows up, uh-huh. right? And she's like, hey, baby, I'm here. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, shit, Catherine, if she finds out about us, it's going to be a big problem. Uh-huh. So she starts dressing up like a man so oh. they can hang out. So she's in while his room. Sophie's there for those four months. She's like his best friend on in the army. So she's in his room and Sophie comes in. Hello, I'm home. I've come to see you, my husband. And he's like, oh, quick, put my my, my uniform on. Exactly. Oh, hello. I'm just giving the orders to your husband. I'm here and I put on a French uniform for some reason. But it's lovely to meet you. Viva la revolution. Sure, I love it. I love that version of (laughs) events. Let's say that happened. But Graham Robb also thinks that Sophie was messing with the record on this one. Oh, okay. Um, Because all of that story came from her eventual divorce petition. I see. But he writes, quote, Subsequent letters from the major suggest that he had tried one last time to stir up some passion in his wife. He missed his sons, and it was probably only later that he attached himself to Catherine Thomas. Oh, okay. Sophie's petition dates from a time when she was busy constructing the legend of a royalist Amazon manacled to a Republican vandal, which her sons inevitably accepted as the truth. Oh. The only certainty is that when Victor Hugo arrived in Paris at the age of one and three quarters, his parents had begun the long and painful separation which continued throughout his childhood and dragged him on a tour of Napoleon's empire. The single most important fact of Victor Hugo's formative years is that his advent coincided with the collapse of his parents' marriage. Oh, wow. So if things hadn't been falling apart, he wouldn't have been so, like, experienced and educated and worldly. Maybe not. And had all these viewpoints that helped him write these novels. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, he, you know, he's seeing Uh two, two cheating parties fighting over, you know... Right. Each, uh, over their kids and over right. each other and over stuff and whatever for many years. Right. So, um, so he's like, that certainly must have 
informed his ideas about love and marriage. Yeah, he's probably like my uh, my 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 mother is like uh, like a, a, a hunchback person ringing a bell in a tower, and <laughs> me and my brothers are three singing gargoyles. Uh, <laughs> the narrator is a clown. I don't know. Uh, something like that. That's, I only I read the book a long time ago, but I've definitely seen the Disney movie more recently. Well, that's so cool about, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's cool or not, but it is interesting to learn uh, how this all led to Victor Hugo being uh, who we know and love today. <laughs> we know and Very love interesting. today. Well, there's a lot more to learn about these two, and we will do that right after this break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Bienvenue to the show. I guess I should learn those words too. <laughs> the thing is, we've done French episodes before and we've had this exact stumbling block. Why have we not looked it up already? Look, uh, <laughs> welcome back in French. Content de te revoir. It's got to be better than that. <laughs> Content de te revoir. Content de te re- What? <laughs> Happy to have, have you return. Happy to see you again. What is it? Content, Content de te revoir. Contente tu revoir. Mm-hmm. Contente tu revoir. There you go. 
I did it. <laughs> there you go. You could, you could skip your Duolingo for the day, everybody, because you learned all right. you need to know right here. Well, Sophie went to Elba. Whatever happened down there happened. Mm -hmm. And she picked up her kids and went right back to Paris and Victor Lahorie, who she decided to help hide from the government. Because oh. he had been a part of the Moreau conspiracy. Remember uh, Club Moreau? Yeah, bonus romance. But like Moreau, he had avoided execution and he was instead sentenced to be exiled in America. But unlike Moreau, Victor refused to go. He's like, I've heard what they do to their chocolate over there. I'm not going to be a part of it. So Sophie settled in an old convent and she hid Lahari in the chapel. Oh, my God. This is the hunchback. Okay. Victor Lahari was the sure. hunchback. Oh, sure. God. It's all coming sense. together now. Then at one point, she took her kids to Naples to visit Leopold. But he didn't want her there. He thought that she would uncover his affair with Catherine, who by now, even by Graham Robb's estimate, he had been living with for about two years. Right. So she only stayed for a day. But you know what? That's okay for Sophie. She's living with her man, too. True. Of course, the kids all discovered Lahorie living there in the chapel. So he started calling himself Monsieur de la Colonne. Mm. And he basically became like a second father to all the Hugo boys. In fact, there's some speculation among scholars that Victor Lahorie is Victor Hugo's real father. <gasps> but it doesn't really make a lot of sense considering that when she was living near him in Paris, she was pregnant with Eugène, their second son. And when she came back to Paris and saw him again, Victor, their third son, was already born. So the conception right. dates don't really when, work out. Yeah, where? Yeah. Then in 1810, Victor Lahorie was betrayed oh. and arrested in front of Sophie and her kids. Oh, no. And that might be why they decided to go visit Leopold in Madrid. Mm. And they braved a dangerous journey through war-torn country. But there was one little problem. Leopold was actually living in Guadalajara with Catherine, and Oops. he didn't know they were coming. Sophie had failed to alert him, or maybe she sent him a letter to the wrong address because she didn't know he was off somewhere. Because Leopold's doing great in Spain. His old friend, Joseph Bonaparte, is now the king of Spain oh. and had made him a count. Jeez. Uh, Leopold was hella pissed that Sophie was showing up interrupting his time with his mistress, uh -huh. traveling through war-torn areas with their kids, not talking to him first. You know, he was mad about her. Wow. Jeez, uh, wife, you're really cramping my style out here. <laughs> so he decided to seek a divorce. Mm. And he also got custody of the kids. All three boys went to a boarding school in Madrid called College of Nobles. Mm. But Sophie went to Joseph Bonaparte for help, and he actually got them to kiss and make up for a while. I guess because oh. he's the king. You're probably just like, okay, oh, sure, yeah, sure. yeah. For you, anything. But it wasn't too long before Leopold somehow learned that Sophie and Lahori had been playing baguettes and beignets together. <laughs> and that the only thing she wanted to do was to get back to Paris so that she could find out if he was okay. And that pretty much... You know, that took I mean, care of the vibe between them. Things yeah, were pretty done he, at that point. Yeah. <laughs> no more reconciliation. Didn't go for it. And not only that, but Sophie received a mysterious envelope from Paris with 4,750 francs inside. She was positive it was from Victor Lahorie and that she needed to get back to him as soon as possible. So she said goodbye, Leopold. She <laughs> tagged along with a military escort and that saved her all the trouble of the dangerous journey through war-torn Spain. Mm -hmm. And once again, she was back home in Paris 
and she visited Victor Lahorie in prison regularly. That is, until October 1812. This guy named Claude-François de Malay had become disillusioned with Napoleon Bonaparte years before. He had spent some time in prison for conspiring against him. And, like, he was a royalist, but also he was just mad because Napoleon killed his brother. Okay, so it's very personal for, for him. But in 1812, his wife convinced the authorities to let him retire to a sanatorium for his health. Okay. And while he was there, he met some bourbons who were trying to get Louis XVIII on the throne. Well, they really wanted Louis XVIII on the throne. Man, they were sick to death of Napoleon. They were like, <laughs> we need a Louis. There's like maybe three out of the 16 Louis were bad. You know, <laughs> most of the Louis are good. Can Don't we get another Louis back, Louis please? Throw out the Louis with the bathwater. <laughs> the Louis with the bathwater. <laughs> so even though Malay was more of a Republican than he was a royalist, he still started plotting with them to overthrow Napoleon because he was just like, whatever, anyone who wants to play, I'm ready to play. I hate this guy. An opportunity struck in 1812 because Napoleon is freezing his derriere off trying to invade Russia. Mm. So he's not in Paris. So at 4 a.m. on October 23rd, Malay put on a general's uniform. He escaped the sanatorium. He walked up to a colonel of the French National Guard named Gabriel Soulier Mm -hmm. and informed him that Napoleon Bonaparte had died in Russia. What? Yep. (laughs) He just walked up in a costume? (laughs) Amazing. Malay also told Soulier that the entire Bonaparte family had been deposed by the Senate and Malay was in charge now. (laughs) I can't believe he fell for it. Uh Uh-huh. But... Did he call himself Malay or was he just like giving orders that like some I don't know some guy named Malay is in charge now you'll have to find him <laughs> I think that he was like it's me I'm in charge wow now. that's even ballsier yeah he's like, Walk up and be like the senate said I'm in charge now everybody I don't know I, I don't even want to be I'm your they new just boss, told me that it's gonna be cool sorry how's my favorite branch doing <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> Now, yeah, it seems like so far-fetched who would fall for this, but he did have a bunch of forged documents to prove it, including a really nice one that promoted Gabriel Soulier to a general. Oh. So Soulier had no questions after that. Uh He just did whatever Malay told him to do. And one of the things that he had to do for Malay was go to the prison and release several people, including Victor Lahorie. Wow. Since everyone Malay released was a Republican, they all agreed to join his coup against Napoleon, and Lahorie was made the minister of police. Amazing. Then Malay went to another general's house who was in charge of the Paris garrison and told him, "Uh, you are relieved of duty. Mm -hmm. And the guy questioned him, so Malay shot him in the jaw. Ouch. Then Malay went across the street to the military headquarters to tell them, Hey, uh, turns out Napoleon is dead. I just got the word. Uh, Everything is different now. I'm in charge. Funny story. But the senior official on duty, Colonel Pierre Doucet, was suspicious right away because all Malay's documents said that Napoleon had died on November 7th. But Pierre had letters written by Napoleon after that date. Hmm. So he played it cool. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, Napoleon's dead on the 7th. Huh? Oh, that's so crazy. <laughs> oh, well, it's great to know you're the guy in charge now. You seem like you really got it together. I really think you're the man to listen to now. And Malay probably sent his guys off to arrest and bore of Napoleon's friends. And as soon as Pierre was alone with Malay... He was like, I got you. You're full of shit. You're full of merde. I'm arresting you. He overpowered him and arrested him. 
and everyone that Malay had arrested was freed, and everyone that had been freed was rearrested again, including Victor Lahorie and Gabriel Soulier, and they were executed on October 29th of 1812. Oh, and guess who else was involved in all this? Our old friend General Moreau of Club Moreau fame. That's right. Remember, he was exiled to America. Yep. But at the instigation of his wife, Eugenie, he had returned to Europe in 1812, and he was advising the Swedish king and the armies who were fighting Napoleon. (laughs) He was not in Paris for the coup, though, so he wasn't arrested during all this. Mm -mm. He actually died on the battlefield in 1813, while he was talking to Tsar Alexander. Yeah. Whoops. Apparently, Tsar Alexander wanted his command. Oh, yeah. Moro's command. Uh-huh. And his like advisors had to be like, no, bro, you're the Tsar. You're like, the Tsar. You, you can't do that. You don't need to do that. And they had to really beg him not to do it. Wow. Um, and after Moreau got shot down right next to him, he turned to his advisor and was like, God was of your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He's like got blood splattered all over his face. He's like, oh. I really dodged the bullet there, didn't oh. I? Huh? Everybody? Ew. Pretty good. Drinks Pretty good. Oh, I'll be czar forever. <laughs> so poor Sophie, her man was dead now. Sucks. And a year later, Leopold came back to Paris, now a general himself, oh. with Catherine Thomas. So he's ready to flaunt her about. Yeah. And he also stopped paying Sophie's rent. Oh. So she left Eugène and Victor with some old family friends, the Fouchers, and took the oldest, Abel, with her to figure out what he was up to. And she's like, come on, you need to start paying my rent again. Let's get this together. Mm -hmm. Instead, Leopold asked for a divorce on the grounds of adultery. Oh, so they didn't end up getting divorced back in Spain? No, Joseph Bonaparte had reconciled them. them. And even though it had got blown up, she had been in Paris, so... And they he could was never fighting. finalize it. Yeah, yeah, so they, you know, they were busy with other things. So now he's like, about that divorce, yeah. I want it. Uh-huh. And he also wanted custody of the kids and put them all in a boarding school again. And Sophie went back to Paris, probably huffing off like, oh, that bastard, uh-huh. only to find her apartment sealed off for non-payment. Oh. So she had to go to the Fouchers and be like, may I please stay with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she did not like doing that. Impoverished, she was forced to find like a cheap place of her own. And she sued for divorce in 1815. And that's when she started talking about finding out about this English concubine way before she ever slept with Victor, you know, stuff like that. She was trying to make herself look better in court more than likely. And that's when she kind of started spinning her little story about being a royalist married to a Republican. And it was like a really hard struggle for them. That's when she started telling the kids, like, that's what's really Mm -hmm. tearing us apart kind of stuff. It's politics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh Nothing personal. Uh Uh-huh. But again, at least according to Graham Robb, that's not likely the real truth. Sophie's family, unlike many Bretons, had been all about the Republic, actually. Mm -hmm. He points out that her grandfather had worked with Jean-Baptiste Carrier, the guy who basically kicked off the reign of terror. Mm, And Robb writes, quote, distinguished himself by loading excess prisoners onto boats and sinking them in the Loire. Yeah, like 400 people in a day and stuff. Like he would just be, it was crazy. He he was like brutal. Carrier's mistress was Sophie's young aunt and best friend, Louise. And when Sophie and Aunt Francoise left for Chateaubriand in 1794, faithfully putting her in Leopold's path, Rob writes, quote, they were not fleeing from Republican troops, but from their fellow Bretons. Those who were appalled by Carrier's brutality 
or those whose festering bodies were spreading disease, piled up in open graves to which Sophie's grandfather had contributed in his capacity as public prosecutor in Nantes. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of royalist cred. No. Now, Victor and his brothers were not baptized, which meant that she wasn't a fervent Catholic. And while Victor Lahorie had plotted to restore the Bourbon king, he had been more of a Republican than a royalist himself. Mm-hmm. Graham Robb chalks Victor Hugo's misrepresentation of his family history, quote, to his mother's silence and his father's love of stories in which he was the hero. More than that, it reflects the battle lines drawn up by his parents as their marriage fell apart. From the very beginning, the idea of a royalist mother and a Republican father was highly acceptable because it suggests that historical forces, and not Victor Hugo himself, were responsible for his parents' incompatibility. Mm, he was so like, it's not my fault that you're divorced, right? right. Oh, it's, good, it's, it's, it's politics. politics. Yeah, okay, it's, great, 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 great. Kings and all that. Of course, of course, of yeah. course. Wow. Yeah. That's Which tough. Which is kind of sad. He's trying to absolve himself of something that cer- he was a baby. This certainly right. wasn't his fault. Right, right. Now, Sophie and Leopold's divorce was finalized in 1818. It took a long time to get divorced back yeah. then. And Sophie got custody of her kids back. Oh. Although by now, Abel was 20 years old. Oh, geez. Eugene is 18 and Victor is 16 and had already received an honorable mention in a poetry contest. Oh, wow. This kid's going places. He's, yeah. People are already like, ear, ear, what's going on over here? <laughs> and that made Sophie actually decide to explore her own artistic talents. And oh. she began painting. Very nice. There are some paintings by Sophie uh, Trebuchet That's out cool. there. And they spent a lot of time with their friends, the Fouchers. And soon, Sophie discovered that Victor had fallen in love and got secretly engaged to the daughter of the house, his childhood friend, Adele Foucher. Oh. But Sophie did not approve. She thought Victor could do better. So she's like, no. And he was like, yes. Oh, <laughs> and they kind of went back and forth for a while. Thrilling reenactments. <laughs> you, go, you, you get him here on Ridiculous Romance, everybody. <laughs> that's that's uh, years of acting training and... Uh, just a brilliant character work being done. Look. Here in the studio. <laughs> I know I know Look, it's hard to do in the moment. But a lot. <laughs> can you give it to us again? <laughs> she said no. And he said, Yes. I feel like I'm there. <laughs> but I don't think they like fought a lot about it. Right. Like it, you know, he didn't like marry her out of hand or something. Okay. He just was like, it just is what it is. Yeah. And she was like, mm, I'm just gonna grumble about it. Okay. You know, kind of vibes. Good. Two years later, after catching cold while tending her garden and falling ill, Sophie Trebuchet died in June 1821. Only a month later, Leopold married Catherine Thomas, who became Countess de Selcano. Oh. Uh, which is funny. I don't. Why didn't he marry her after he got divorced? Uh, he, he could have done it in 1818. Well, only a month later. Maybe they were already making plans. And it just took a while. I know, but their divorce was finalized in 1818. Right. So that was three years before. Look, uh, something tells me Leopold wasn't exactly rushing into commitment I mean, again, you know? Very true. But maybe he thought it would, like, Sophie would not yeah, maybe respond he was, well. Yeah. He was like, I won't marry you. Right. I don't know. But he, he ended up marrying her. She's a countess now. Good for you, girl. <laughs> Side piece got it. <laughs> <laughs> And Victor reconciled with his father, but later in his life, he did move his mother's remains to Père Lachaise, where she is buried as Countess Hugo. Oh, mm-hmm. Père Lachaise. Honeymoon alert. I know, right? Everybody's in Père Lachaise. Everybody's there. We have to go back. I keep saying this every time it comes up because yeah. we didn't know about any of this when no. we went. 
We so were we like completely just strolled on by Jim so Morrison, cool places, Balzac. I think right. Victor Hugo himself, like we knew the big names. Right. We went to the biggies, right. I guess. But yeah. So that's their ridiculous romance. I love it. It's like uh, when we started with Anne Bonnie and yes. Calico Jack and found out that her parents had an insane story of their the own. Spoons. We had to tell. Oh, yeah. Those spoons. Oh, my God. Oh, a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, thank you to Ginny and to uh, Cassandra yeah. for sending in Victor Hugo so that we would be like, let's get our asses in gear, do Victor Hugo, because this was such a fun story and a lot of little bits of French revolutionary history that I didn't know much about. Oh, there's... Little coups and, you know, little fires that pop up when you're changing a government, a yeah. complete way of life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a messy process. Yeah. And how like you're like, oh, good. We got the bad thing out. Mm-hmm. We will replace it with a perfectly good thing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This thing ain't so good. Or often just the same thing. Yeah. You know, same kind of structures, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. really. I mean, different people, but same structures. So it doesn't really have that <sighs> much of a different outcome. I don't know. Oh, my God. But yes, I really enjoyed diving into some French revolutionary shenanigans. Beautiful and, stuff. Uh, these two's hot messes of truly, relationships. <laughs> truly ridiculous lives. I mean... Well, and poor Sophie, her man got scooped up. I know. He had a cause and he went for it, you know? He did. And that's he, the that's risk. That's very true. Yeah. That's the risk. That's very Happy true. He did a good job. Well, we hope you enjoyed it as much yeah, as we did. Definitely. Please reach out. We always love to hear from you. Obviously, these suggestions are amazing. If you have any of your own or if you have any feedback about the episode or anything like that, please reach out to our email, ridicromance at gmail.com. That's right. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great, it's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at ridicromance. Yeah, yeah. And we can't wait to dive into more about Victor next time. That's right. And tell you all about his crazy shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in. We'll catch you then. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.